Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello, everybody. I am jumping in here with quite a serious fair dues warning. Today, we are talking about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the history of abortion in America. This can obviously be quite a tough subject. So this is just your heads up that that's what we're talking about. Adult themes will be covered, some distressing content. And if that's not for you, then please just give this one a miss. On the 24th of June 2022, the US Supreme Court overturned the 1973 ruling known as Roe v. Wade, meaning that after 50 years of being able to access abortion, many women now no longer have that right. This is an incredibly difficult time for women who have lost this right, but it isn't the first time that it's happened. Today, Betwixt the Sheets, I'm joined by Leslie Regan to look at the first time that abortion was made illegal in America, which was in the late 19th century. We're going to be talking about what that meant for women then, how that campaign started, and what women had been doing to access abortions up to that point. Let's begin. So, hello to Leslie J. Regan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, it's my pleasure. I would, I'd love to say that we met under happier circumstances, but the current discussion that we're going to have is a really heavy one. And I'm, I'm so grateful that there's historians like you doing the work that you're doing around this. I mean, what's it like in the States at the moment? What's your reaction to the initial overturning of Roe v. Wade? Well, we knew it was coming, but it's just awful. It's mm. very distressing. You know, I live in Illinois, which is a state that has passed a Reproductive Health Care Act and is making sure that people know it's legal and that they're welcome to come to Illinois. But, you know, everybody can't travel. And I'm just very concerned for the suffering that has already begun and that it's going to get worse. It's very chaotic for people. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Like I'm in the UK, I'm on the other side of the pond to you guys and and we still felt it here. Like that there's just a collective, I suppose, intake of breath and fear about what this means, what precedent this sets. And I think that that's felt the world over, actually. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the movements to criminalize and legalize abortion have been related. And we look around at the rest of the world and the legalization in the US and England were related. When abortions became available in England, many people traveled to the UK from the United States and Canada. 
Obviously, that was incredibly expensive and difficult, so only a few people could do it, but people did, and there was a lot in the press about, oh my God, there's so many women coming here. We have to stop them. And when I see that other countries are moving to legalize abortion, like Mexico and Ireland, I, like you, am very glad for people there and see that as a victory for women's rights and their health. And to see this go backwards is very, very frightening and, and upsetting. It just seemed like such an enormous step back. And from the outside looking in, it's like America's this like colossal giant, you know, of guys, what are you? I suppose that's the fear is like if America can do this, if it's going to happen in America in 2022, then where else can this happen? It's very scary. It's really scary. Yeah. Well, of course, we have a different political system. Mm. You just had a prime minister resign under pressure. and We had a very similar leader where that didn't happen and the party supports him. So they are different. Yes. But, you know, these ideas are shared. And I think, you know, how did this happen is we have a Supreme Court that's been packed by a party that is a minority party. But because of all the ways that electoral politics work in this country, they were able to win the presidency with a minority vote and <laughs> fill the Supreme Court. And they're doing exactly what they were hired to do we knew was coming. And of course, it's abortion, but it's a lot of other things as well in terms of changing the way government works, what we can expect, and the ability of people to make things better. You know, it's I grew up with the idea that America was this incredible, you know, the greatest democracy in the world, Melinda free, and then this happens, and it's basically nine people who weren't publicly elected made this decision. And it's just like, so what? What is that system? But... Anyway, that's, we'll save American politics for another day. We'll focus on this today. So you have, in the course of your research, researched the history of abortion. And it's times like this where, I mean, your work is always important, but it's really important right now because the history of abortion is not quite what people think that it would be, is it? No, not at all. I mean, the history, I think a lot of people will think if you see a law that says it's illegal, or if you hear from priests or you hear a public discourse that condemns abortion that, oh, it didn't happen, and that everyone agreed this was immoral and terrible. And what I found when I did my research is really the history is the opposite. It was rather commonplace, you know, it kind of changes over time how people access it, what people think about it, how they do it, but it was not unusual. It was Common while it was criminalized throughout the entire hundred years that it was illegal in the United States from the 1860s and 1870s up to the early 1970s. And there really was a popular understanding, a popular morality that accepted abortion and understood why women needed it at certain times. This was not expressed from the rooftops at a time when, of course, women did speak in public, but they didn't have public authority. They didn't have political power through the vote. They weren't elected. And yet you can find it in the way that they talked with doctors and with their families and friends, the way men on a very, very rare comment to find in a historical record from a man on a jury saying, what? It doesn't matter that she wanted this abortion? And they quickly shut him down. No, no, that doesn't matter at all. So it, you get these glimpses of if she saw that she needed it, then it's acceptable. So that is what I think most people don't know. And then, of course, we have the opinion 
from the U.S. Supreme Court that says history, history, history is what matters and produces a history that is false. That really is a false history. And because one of the crucial things in your work when abortion was a crime is that it wasn't always illegal. And I think that that is a really important point. In fact, in the terms of historical span, it was illegal for a very short space of time, actually. Yeah, 100 years of criminalization feels like a pretty long time. But (laughs) you are absolutely right that in early America, with European settlement under British common law, there was nothing governing what we would think of as early abortion, which they talked about as the need to restore the menses. It really saw if you miss your period, there's a health problem and you need to do something to get your menses back and restore them, take care of that obstruction. And until a woman herself perceived quickening, which meant feeling some kind of movement inside of her, feeling the stirring inside of her, to use their terms, then at quickening, she knew she was pregnant. And at quickening, when she recognized it, the law recognized it, and society recognized, ah, there's a child. Now you cannot do anything to end that pregnancy. That is a crime. That's immoral. But prior to that, this is not talked about and thought of as an abortion in the way that we use that term now. No. And this idea of the quickening that is significant because it's not just in legal texts that this is sort of the recognition of when life begins, I suppose, which is particularly significant for the debates going on now. But this was actually what the church taught as well. I think I read a source somewhere that said the quickening is when the enthronement of the soul takes place. So this is kind of like scripture and medical, but they were all kind of agreed on this. This is like the first movement of the fetus is when the baby is alive. Yeah, when the woman is quick with child. Quick with child, of course. And when she perceives it. And so, and the cases that we do know of in the 18th century in the United States in the colonial period, where there's prosecution, it's after quickening. But there aren't very many of those cases even. It's after quickening when someone has died and they pursue prosecution, or when someone's been forced into it, where it becomes a public scandal because, in this case in 1821, that's a minister who is living with a family, he has a relationship with one of the daughters, and instead of marrying, they get abortifacients, they try to bring back the menses, and then brings in somebody to use instruments after quickening to bring on an abortion. So the scandal is about a minister, a daughter, the failure to marry, and then this effort post-quickening. And that's what's driving kind of the local community outrage and any kind of state efforts to prosecute. And I think I was doing a bit of research and sort of the quickening, the first movement is around about three months. Is that... You know, quickening, there's no set time. It is completely when a woman herself perceives it. And we are so attached to that there's some technology, there's some precision, there's some exact way that our bodies behave, that pregnancy develops, that we think, ah, 
there's a certain moment, and that's what's getting written into our laws, right? Texas has a law for six weeks at fetal heartbeat, quote unquote, because there is no heartbeat. It's an electrical development, which will eventually become a heart. But we're creating, you know, new names for things because that's the anti-abortion movement. So somewhere maybe between three to five months, depending on the person. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean there were court cases where if they didn't have information where the woman herself has said, you know, she perceives this, if she was big, if she was great, then that would be understood as she's quick. Quick with child. Yes. I read somewhere in ancient Rome that they didn't even believe that a child was an actual child until they'd been confirmed a citizen, which was after birth. Mm -hmm. So they had a practice of what we would now call infanticide. Babies were killed and that was not considered great, but it was a weirdly standard thing to happen and not considered grossly immoral because they weren't recognized as citizens, which is wild. Well, it does show you ideas change over time, communities thinking doesn't it and that this is a social creation is when we understand life to begin it's not really scientific or biological and of course most important is there's the law and then there's what people have learned through religion what their own personal moral beliefs and conscience are and in the united states you know it's a pluralist country it is built on the idea that there is no state religion (laughs) and that we all can participate in and have different beliefs and they might even change over time right in a person's own individual life we know that too yeah so when you have such division it's very clear that there isn't agreement in the society and these are actually different beliefs and so this is an imposition of a very specific catholic now christian evangelical view yeah the idea of when does life begin it's a theological debate isn't it and one that there isn't a consensus on but it's not one that we're going to resolve here no wow is it ever (laughs) but I wonder if we could talk a little bit about so we're talking about the world before what we'd now call safe abortions and if you were a girl who needed to as you say restore your menzies what would be the options available to you what was being practiced before legalized abortion Well, so in 17th, 18th century, this really applies to the United Kingdom as well. You know, what we know about this is people knew of various methods and they could grow herbs in their own gardens and they turn them into teas. And then later these herbs and remedies are sold as everything becomes commercialized with capitalism and you have traveling salesmen who sell the materials and then medications and potents and pills Female pills, I've read that. Yeah, in the 19th century. So in the early period, people would know this maybe from each other, from their mothers, their sisters, of what to do if their menses were obstructed. They also might do things like go horseback riding, throw themselves downstairs, things like that to try to bring their menses back to induce a miscarriage. In the 19th century, people could buy pills. They were advertised. They were advertised in newspapers. People might buy them from a pharmacist or a midwife or a doctor or order it through the mail. And then eventually, in the 1830s, there are people who provide abortions and use instruments who become quite well known and and have, you know, what we would think of as clinics where people knew where to go and, and to pay them for 
this service. Mm. And that becomes very important because what is a domestic practice is becoming visible. It's becoming visible in public and it's becoming visible to journalists. And we have booming journalism and, you know, competing newspapers who are figuring out like scandal is what sells. And we're, you know, trying to sell papers to men that is also about boxing and scandal. So this becomes more known because the press is covering it and selling it as scandal. And that becomes very important for, you know, the criminalization ultimately. And it seems to be linked a lot. It sounds really obvious to say it, but like the focus and the outrage around abortion at this time is it's not so much the fact that people don't want to be pregnant. It's how they got pregnant. There seems to be a really strong link with this. It's kind of like outrage about sexual promiscuity, outrage around the kind of sex that isn't just for procreation. It does seem to be a kind of a concern about the sexual morals of people. Yes. I mean, certainly there was a lot of concern about sexual morals in any community and among the Puritans and in early America. But there's both understanding of an unmarried woman who gets stuck and the man doesn't marry her, like the case that I was telling about. They're furious at the man. Yeah. And so there's some sympathy to that. But then there's also, as it becomes public, that it's married women who are going to these clinics. And it's a very specific group of married women in the 1830s and 1840s that they cover in the press, that they're married, they're middle class, the Yankee women, and they're going in and having abortions, and they're also involved in politics. They are out there in the public sphere. Of course, we know about the abolition movement in the 1830s and 1840s and on, but also they're talking about temperance and they're talking about prostitution. And the women's rights movement talks about both of those in terms of male misbehavior, male immorality, and male sexual abuse. They don't use our terms, but they talk about how alcohol, men go and use all the money and destroy the family. There isn't food, there aren't shoes for the kids. And they also turn around and assault their families. And that women, they use different language, but women are subjected to rape mm. and involuntary pregnancies. So that's one attack on male morality. And the other is focusing on prostitution. And the women's rights movements, they're organizing to actually watch who goes in and they're listing the names of the men. And they are saying men are the ones who are immoral. Wow. Women are highly moral. We're the ones who go to church. We're the ones who raise the children and watch what's going on. And they need to come to our standard. They need to become like women. And so it, there's a bit of a backlash here where even the physicians who begin this campaign is like, hey, women are immoral because they are having abortions and that is worse than prostitution. And so, you know, there's this kind of a defense and attack on women. And you have to understand, as I'm saying this, that we're really talking about a very specific, there's white middle classes and there's also working class outrage over these movements, as well as outrage at the class above that is trying to correct their behavior. So most of this is really directed at what you think of as rather powerful or protected or special women, the upper middle classes, white women. Wow. I hadn't made that connection before. That's really interesting that it's a way of attacking their morality. Yes. That's fascinating. Well, and one of the key players in New York is Anthony Comstock. Ah, yes. And he's part of the YMCA 
And he's going after vice and his, the origins of his work is, you know, men have, are passing around or purchasing dirty pictures, erotica in the civil war, the soldiers. And he starts fighting that and then fighting any kind of vice, <laughs> obscenity, you know, dance halls and anything to prevent pregnancy, contraceptives or abortion are equated with immorality and pornography. And eventually we have a federal law that bans the advertisement and the use of the postal service for any kind of quote unquote obscenity, including anything about abortion or contraception. Which had huge repercussions. So people can't order any kind of health, anything. If it's to do with reproduction, they can't order protection through the post or anything like that at all. Well, it doesn't completely, I mean, one thing about this all the time is the laws don't work. No, they don't. You can't think that they absolutely shut things down because they don't. No. But what they do is produce more surveillance over anyone who's trying to sell or provide these services or anyone who's trying to get information and people who are using them. So there's more surveillance, there's more policing, and they will go in and shut down certain people. So they, Madame Restell in New York, who is the very famous abortion provider, in the 1830s, 1840s. They go after her numerous times, even when they don't have a law to use. And, you know, Comstock is around for a long time. He also goes after Margaret Sanger's first birth control clinic in New York in 1914, 1915. So they do shut things down. At the same time, they cannot reach everybody. Yeah. But of course, it frightens everybody. They're being policed and lots of people can't get information. I mean, it was successful enough that Margaret Sanger thought no one had ever talked about any of this before, that there was no information, no knowledge. And actually, there had been a very lively discussion about sex and controlling pregnancy earlier in the 19th century. So sort of before the 19th century, early 19th century, it wasn't widely spoken about, but it was certainly understood and acceptable that there were remedies available, things that you could do, things you could take that would induce a miscarriage. Then, as the 19th century rumbles on, we start to get more and more concern around specifically abortion. And when does it actually become illegal in America? And what happened? What led up to that? So the laws that criminalize abortion from conception on are passed in the 1860s and 1870s. So by 1880, it's criminalized in every state, but it goes by states. So we have this, you always have to remember in the U.S., we have a patchwork of laws. Yes. Now and in the past, but now we have 50 states and what might be happening in every state is not the same. So that makes it very complicated for everybody. So to go backwards, 1860s and 1870s, and it is initiated by a very specific figure, a physician named Dr. Horatio Storer, who was trained at Harvard. He was a Harvard professor. He's a specialist in gynecology and obstetrics, and he writes essays on on abortion and how it is a killing, the quickening is meaningless. That is not when pregnancy begins, you know. Women don't really know anything. Some of them never are quick, and yet they deliver a baby. Ha, ha, ha. Thanks, Horatio. So scorning the knowledge that was at the root of morality and law and women's own capacity to understand their own bodies and saying quickening is irrelevant, life begins earlier at at the instant of conception and claiming they had new science, which they really didn't. But anyway, he writes about really the evils of abortion 
and the people who are performing it. And eventually, he's the person who pushes the new American Medical Association, the AMA, which is tiny, it is not powerful, it is not well known, it's nothing like <laughs> the AMA today, and pushes that organization and the medical societies to bring model legislation criminalizing abortion at all stages of pregnancy wow. and pre-quickening and post-quickening. And medical societies bring this to the state legislatures. And that's how these laws are eventually passed. So you have to ask, what are they saying? And why does this convince the state legislators? And also, why are the doctors interested in this? Yeah, why then? What was happening then? Exactly. So doctors, this is a small group. There are lots of different kinds of doctors in practice in the 19th century. There's no licensing. People who are apprenticed to somebody else can become a doctor. If they read textbooks, they could become a doctor or they can have this much more fancy and expensive education and go to Europe and become a doctor. So you can see right there, there's enormous class differences. There are these very elite, well-to-do people who become orthodox, regular doctors. And then there's a whole lot of other people who they think are not doctors. They shouldn't be able to practice and they are competing with them. And that includes midwives and what they call lady doctors. Lady doctors, brilliant. Yeah, so this is also about, they want to control the competition. They are claiming we're the doctors and these other people are the ones who are performing abortions. Passing these laws will mean that they have a new ally in the state, they're connected, and they can declare that something that has not been unusual, has been acceptable in the law, is now criminal with one exception. Doctors who have a bona fide medical reason to perform an abortion may do so. So it always remains legal for doctors, regular doctors, not the people that they're attacking, right, yeah. to perform abortions. They always leave that exception for themselves where in their medical judgment, if it's needed to preserve the, quote, life or the health of the woman, they can do it. So that's their interest, but that's not necessarily convincing for the state legislatures. They're also saying the people who have abortions are these Yankee white middle class women, and they're not doing their duty to the nation. Instead, they're out involved in the public and in politics. They should be bearing children and raising children and staying out of areas of life that are not their business. Wow. And if they don't have children as they should for the nation and their families and their class, then the country is going to be settled by immigrants, by quote-unquote aliens, and especially Catholics. And we will be, you know, basically the class that's in power, white Protestant elite men, they, we, will not, we will lose the power. So this, and he this produces data showing how immigrants are having so many more children than quote-unquote Americans. It's not even accurate data, but okay. So, and he's the key person that produces all the material and then state legislatures. This one guy just... Yeah, I mean, he doesn't do it all alone, but he writes everything, produces everything, writes the letters that the medical society sends to the legislatures and tells them how to go about this. And obviously the medical societies take it up and the state legislators listen and pass these laws. And it is directed, especially... You see the class racial dynamic in terms of what they're goals and fears are 
the results of these laws later most hurt. I mean, it hurts all women. It's directed at these middle-class women, but it especially then hurts women of color, working-class women, poor women, as we have a new loss enforcement system created and as you have you know, many doctors refusing to provide abortions. It's kind of a long answer. <laughs> what? No, it's fascinating that what was driving this in no small part, and not even subtly, was the argument that we need more white people. It's very specific white people. It's white Protestants who are of the upper classes, who are the people who are educated, moneyed, wow. and have political power. And it's, I think that it kind of goes to the heart of what we're dealing around with here is that not being able to control family size, not being able to control your reproductive capacities. I once came across a record of a woman in Ireland in, I think it was 1910, and she'd given birth over 23 times. Yeah. Like she just, because obviously she got married very young and then pretty much every year from then on until she hit menopause, yeah, she'd had a baby. Well, and, you know, in early America, the um, European settlers and after the revolution had really high fertility rates. They had, you know, 10, 15 children, which also includes miscarriages and stillbirths. I mean, that doesn't count pregnancies. And I know like Europe thought, what? They're so... <laughs> They're bizarre over there, having so many. They're so fertile. But over the 19th century, this drops in half. Do we know why? Well, we know there's a various ways to do that. And we also know some of the whys. I mean, if you think sociologically, people in the middle classes, if you want to ensure that your own children are able to maintain that family class, that takes money to be able to we're talking like say 1830s, 1840s and on, right? It takes money to ensure that they are educated and the son might become a minister or a doctor, which was not well-paying particularly, set them up in business to make sure that your daughters can get married. So they have fewer children because they're focusing on that small family and ensuring their class status. Then others, you know, rural families, as they move into cities, we all know that very quickly they may have large families and then over time the size gets smaller and that's for a whole bunch of reasons. When you're farming, you need lots of people to do all the work and the gender it's gendered, that kind of labor. But once you're you know, in a city, you have smaller living space, the number of children needed declines. So it's also about people's planning and their desires. And so they're using a lot of different things. 19th century married couples might not always live together because they traveled. They traveled and they visited family for six months at a time. Of course. And that kind of thing. Nursing newborns will decrease fertility. You know, that kind of deliberate abstinence. And then there are also the methods. There's kind of the basic methods that everyone since antiquity on has figured out. Men pull out and they use teas and different things. There are kind of earlier versions of the diaphragm that are available. So people can be using all kinds of things and they work some of the time to some degree. And then if somebody realizes uh, my menses are late and we might be having another child, they can turn to abortion. So those are the key methods that everyone's figured out since antiquity. You know, it's either trying to prevent before you get pregnant or once you prevent the birth at the point of pregnancy. Yeah. So those are the methods 
that bring down family size and fertility over the course of the 19th century? It's such a difficult question to ask because obviously we don't have reliable statistics and figures on this, but is there any way of knowing how many people were trying to access abortions when they made it illegal? Was there any kind of pushback against it? Was there any kind of outcry of like, we need this? Well, there's not an outcry in the way that we, the way it is today. There's none of that. But for a lot of people, it doesn't change anything because they're doing this at home. It's domestic. They are going to local neighbors. And so a lot of it is simply invisible. Yeah. They also continue to go to midwives and to doctors. So the medical profession is leading the cause to criminalize abortion and is talking about how it's immoral. This is a murder. This is like infanticide in public. But then a patient comes to them and they say, Wah, and they tell, you know, that it's why they need this. Doctors perform abortions. They also have a loophole that allows them to do it. But a lot of that is just, it's going to be quiet. Healthcare takes place at home. It does not take place in hospital. Abortions mostly are going to be at home. And unless there is an injury or a death, most of the time nobody's going to see it. And there are so many people available in the 19th century. It changes with the 20th century because it becomes increasingly visible and you have fewer providers. But you know, what I found is doctors, of course, were providing abortions, just like midwives and other people, and they made referrals. So it all is going to depend on people's ability to find the person who will help them and to give them information. And I would say for even into the early 20th century, there's so many reports from doctors saying, oh, you know, these ladies, they come in and they are well-respected married ladies in the community, and they think it's okay to have an abortion. And I tell them, no, quickening doesn't matter. And they, they laugh and say, I'll just ask somebody else. There are so many reports like that from doctors who are frustrated with their patients that they cannot teach them. They preach at them. It doesn't seem to make any difference. They critique the ministers and pastors of the country because they don't seem to be concerned about this. And really, the doctors are putting themselves above the ministry when they insist on the immorality of abortion. And of course, we should note, they are talking about morality, <laughs> not talking about, really, they're not talking about medicine. No. I mean, they are saying there's something different about science, but it is driven by all of these other issues, the criminalization. And of course, the more that the focus ramps up on the horrors of abortion, how immoral it is, the more it becomes spotlighted as an issue the more it forces it underground and into the hands of people that aren't safe, I suppose. Because if you couldn't access a doctor to do this for you, then you could take one of the herbal abortifacts, but they're also very toxic and they're very dangerous. And I was alarmed to read an article that apparently people in America are now searching out some of these herbs and things today. So we won't name them today, which is a, a horrible state of affairs, but they don't work a lot of the time and they can be extremely dangerous. And backstreet abortions likewise can be extremely dangerous, can't they? So when did we start to get a kind of a pushback in the States to this? So it's been criminalized, it's illegal, the doctors are moralizing to high heaven. When do you start to get the voices saying this should be legal, we need this to be legal and safe? You know, there's a couple of people in the 30s, there's a movement in the 1930s in Britain to legalize abortion. There's nothing like that in the US. I mean, there are a couple of people who talk about it, but 
There's nothing similar. And that, of course, is we do not have, I mean, the left had been stamped out after World War I, and we just did not have the same kind of politics. <laughs> so there was nothing comparable. It's not, it's in the late 50s that you have a group of, a small group of doctors and lawyers who begin to talk about, we need to change these laws. The laws are basically tying our hands, doctor's hands, because we don't know what the law actually means. And we know we need to provide abortions for our patients. We know there's medical reasons and we want to, but we're afraid that we are going to be policed and arrested. And so we need to change the law so that we can provide more abortions. So that's where it begins. And they write a model law and it begins to go into some of the state legislators. And it is just to expand legal abortion for doctors, what we call therapeutic abortions, what they call therapeutic abortions for medical reasons only. And they say they have written into it. It's for protection of life, health, rape, I think is in there, and for fetal deformity. So it's very narrow, but it's intended to expand the practice of legal abortion. And they're very aware of the dangers that women are facing, but they also discuss, you know, but what about for a young woman, you know, a 16-year-old? Oh, that'll ne- we can't put that in. That will never fly. So they're aware that this will not sort of solve everything. And then we have a couple of things happen. We have Finkbein and thalidomide, which everybody is familiar with. Thalidomide was widely sold in the UK and Germany and Europe. But in the US, it was not sold. But it was in cough syrup. It was a sedative. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, it caused birth defects, especially missing limbs, shortened limbs, and very high miscarriage and infant mortality rates. And this terrified the world and terrified Americans. So there begins to be a conversation about abortion because doctors are like, you know, if you know you've taken this, you should get an abortion. You deserve to be able to have an abortion. There's absolutely no question in the medical profession about this. Sherry Finkbein is the person who tries to help other mothers like her because she had taken something and realizes, oh, this is the medicine that's causing these quote unquote damaged babies in Europe and ask for an abortion. But she tells people, she goes to the press, and immediately there are people who say, what? You know, you can't do this. The local sheriff, is, if this happens, I will prosecute you. And the doctor and the hospital, they get scared, and they will not allow the abortion. And then every single state does the same thing. And she ultimately, she cannot get a legal abortion in the U.S., and no one's going to take the risk. So, I mean, ultimately, the Swedish... Swedish journalists were very interested and they paid to help her and her husband to go to Sweden and ultimately have an abortion there. So there's that, which really brings birth defects and the fear of disability and abortion and the sense from somebody like her, a white middle-class mother who was very respectable. She had four children who did not want to have an abortion and they start talking about abortion. So there's Finkbein, and then there's a German measles epidemic. German measles is rubella, and German measles causes birth defects if a woman becomes infected when she's pregnant. And that can be blindness, deafness, intellectual impairments. And really, Americans and doctors and the rest, but they tended to think of this as 
thalidomide babies because there was a lot of press and a lot of photos of thalidomide babies. And so that's what they saw. And they also were like, if I've had German measles, I don't want this to happen to my child. I don't think I can take care of them. And they sought abortions. And without question, the medical profession globally and throughout the U.S. thought this was a good reason. This was a reasonable reason for abortions. So they're talking about this in the press. And then there are some cases in the U.S. where they, well, in San Francisco, California, they go after doctors for performing abortions for German measles, which are considered to be completely reasonable. Hospitals are okay with this. They're highly reputable doctors. And this also explodes into public and especially for the medical profession to realize, oh, they're willing to come after you when you've done an abortion in a hospital where everybody has agreed this is reasonable. So that's all from the medical side. I mean, I have to point out that this early reform movement and the expansion of reform and the adoption of pushing these reform laws and women's support, men's support, family support around the country for it, does come from the fear of disabilities and the fear of having disabled children. And I see this as a combination of complete fear of disabilities and avoidance. And if you look at the circumstances, their awareness as parents as to what this will actually mean in real life. So it's partly the body, but it is also the child will be shunned. The family will be shunned. There is no support socially for helping to educate or to provide health care, or even to include them in social life. Instead, they will be excluded. They have no right to education. So all of this is part of how people think. And they conclude, if they know they've been infected, many or most conclude, this is terrible for the unborn baby. I must have an abortion for my child and for my family. And that is how they talk about it. I'll be back after a short break. Millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 to called the Forgotten War. The North Koreans and the South Koreans, even today in the 2020s, they're still officially at war. This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. From the halls of power. I've seen documents in the last week where the British chiefs of staff are telling Clement Attlee, this might lead to World War III. This might be a nuclear war. To the battlefront. During the Korean War, the ship fired its guns far more than it ever did in the whole of the Second World War, because that's what we were doing day in, day out. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit, as we remember the war the world forgot. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Tell me a little bit about the case of Jerry Santoro and what happened to her. She died of a botched abortion in 1964 and was photographed on the floor. What impact did that have? Well, that photo was brought out in public and showed people what illegal abortion and the criminalization of abortion meant. Here was a woman who had not been able to find somebody who could perform an abortion and she and her partner tried to do this together, and she died in the process, and her body was found in the position of their attempt, and she was bleeding, and there's a black and white crime photo that then becomes published and publicized. So it shows in this graphic way what happens. We don't usually have photos available that show actually what abortion was like, and also about the injuries and the deaths. There were Thousands of women every single year pouring into emergency rooms throughout the U.S. It's like 6,000 per year in New York, 5,000 per year in Chicago, 6,000, something like that in L.A. So it's everywhere. It's not just the big cities. It's just that's where we have some numbers. And so we don't have photos of that. There were entire wards dedicated to septic abortions, to people who were feverish, infected, and some of them died. And we do not have pictures of that. We do not have pictures of these crime scenes. So we have to use our imagination. So the picture of this woman then gets used in the movement to demonstrate the dangers of illegal abortion and also to demonstrate past Roe versus Wade when you have an anti-abortion movement develop and their use of photos of blown up embryos and fetuses or things they claim to be, right, to frighten people. This was used as a counter photo. I mean, it also ended up being controversial. You know, did anyone agree to this? It's, it's a really graphic image. Yeah. So the thing is, I mean, that's true. There are these, and I'm really emphasizing also, there's deaths, but there are also, you know, what's called morbidity, the people who are injured and the people who are harmed. And this, of course, affected them and their families for the rest of their lives, if they like barely survived, they're aware of that. It also affected the people who took care of them. So medical students, residents, nurses, doctors, hospital staff, 
they were holding hands. They were trying to address the injuries, the perforation of the uterus and the abdomen and the bleeding and the infections. And people were dying on them and they knew perfectly well this could be a safe procedure. This does not have to be happening. And so that becomes part of what drives ultimately the medical profession to support complete repeal of the abortion laws because they are seeing the consequences and they have to deal with the consequences and it becomes unbearable. And the other part of that is it's also clear that there is a huge difference by class and race as to who is most injured. I mean, everybody could be in that situation of going to an unknown person or trying it themselves out of desperation because they cannot find safe providers. And so middle-class white women, working-class people, black, Asian, everybody. But of course, if you were married to a doctor, you're a doctor, you, many of those people had more likely to have access, but not everybody, depending on where they lived and who they knew. And so across all categories of identities of people, they're going through this. But you can see, like in the hospitals by 1970, 71, they're saying in Georgia, you know, most of the people who are coming in with injuries are poor black women and the rates of deaths are like 11 times higher for black unmarried teens compared to whites. So there's just this awareness of the public health disaster that has occurred as a result of these laws. And I suppose before I'm going to have to let you go eventually, but yeah, I know. <laughs> one of the things I do want to talk to you about before you go is how is this policed? Because it seems like a really difficult thing to police. What, it's like, did the police just raid these hospital wards? It's like, what happened? How is this policed? This is a really important question. And I think gives us an idea of what will be coming because the same methods for capturing people and trying to suppress abortion are going to be revived. So they focus on people where there's deaths. And I said that first, and you can think of that as we're going to get rid of the people who are dangerous. It's almost like taking care of malpractice. To do that, though, even in the 1900s, they're looking for the women who they think are going to die. And they begin to require doctors and hospitals to ask questions, to conduct really the investigation for them and ask who did this, where did they do it, how much did you pay, who's the quote-unquote father, and even threaten them. I won't take care of you until you give me the information and then sign on this piece of paper where I've recorded what you've said. They called in the police as required. The police interrogated women to obtain dying declarations. This happened to lots of women who didn't die um, and their cases don't code into public or a court. So people who were miscarrying right into the 70s were kept until a police officer could come and question them. And we will know, and it already is happening, to women who miscarry. So women are seen as suspects. Because they miscarry, they are a suspect. Is this an abortion? Did you do it yourself? Oh my God. And women who are already suspects because they are black, because black people have been criminalized and they are seen as criminal, they are going to be policed more. They're going to be questioned more and they're going to pursue. So that's one thing where women really are punished through the process of investigation. The other method that becomes very important is raiding clinics that become known, whether it's a complaint or they just see lots of people going in. This is everywhere in the country. Police will surround the office, the home, and collect women as they leave. 
and hold them or go in and conduct a raid and all of a sudden people come in and their goal is to capture patients, patients who are waiting for their procedures, patients hopefully in the middle of the procedure so they can capture the doctor or the provider and people recovering. Oh, Jesus. And all of their medical records. And then use all of that to question people and bring them in to court to testify. So women's bodies, we have in these laws in the U.S. and the anti-abortion movement saying, we're not interested in prosecuting women. They're victims of abortion. We're only going after the providers. That, of course, isn't true. But even if they never prosecute a woman who has an abortion, they will be punishing her because the process of investigation is punitive. Yeah. And the only way to prove it is to have evidence from people's bodies, both verbal, oral testimony and literally doing gynecological examinations to collect evidence to prove that an abortion was attempted or performed. The woman's body's a crime scene, basically. Yes. Some of these cases, I was so outraged and upset when I read them. I was in the archives stomping around in just fury. Because it was, I mean, this case where they brought 10 women to the police, first to a doctor who did a gynecological examination under the eyes of the police, and then took them to the police station. And that just, it is so horrific. The coerced exams, I mean, it's an assault. It is. It is truly an assault. And today we have, you know, we have states where it's legal, so people can travel. It's very expensive. But we also have new methods of surveillance, as we all know, through the internet and through our phones. And so the ability to surveil for the police and prosecutors who want to go after abortion is astronomical, (laughs) simpler. You know, there's many more sources. There's cameras all over the streets. I hadn't even thought about that, but if they want to try and prove who's had an abortion or not, they're going to have to target women who are miscarrying pregnant, recently been pregnant. It's And it's not only that. We also have a lot of laws in this country that have been passed and have been held as unconstitutional that say a fetus is a human being, an embryo is a human being, and that harming that is manslaughter and murder. So we have these laws that can potentially come back into place and people already have been arrested and prosecuted and imprisoned for miscarrying, for a stillbirth, for the charge that they committed manslaughter. So the dangers are, there's predictions of the incredible criminalization that is going to take place. It's just so bleak. It's just, it's so frightening. I mean, we have to say, it is frightening. It is incredibly dreadful what's happening and upsetting. There is also a very strong movement to provide abortions, which is like the 1960s to some extent, but there are people ready to provide medication abortion. They are ready to go into states on the borders or go into the states and provide abortions. We have the international effort of, you know, having a ship in international waters and people going there for abortions. All of this is going to happen in the U.S. too. But it becomes harder, more expensive, dangerous if they think they might get caught. And Some people will not know that there's somebody out there who wants to help them. They will not be able to find the people who will help pay for it, who help drive them, who will help in all the ways they need, pay for childcare. They won't be able to access the internet and get the information. And again, the most vulnerable. They're the ones who are going to, in desperation, 
go to someone else or do things themselves and they may or may not survive. Leslie, it has been so amazing to talk to you. And if people want to find out more about your work and your research, which they should because it's so valuable now, it always was, but particularly now, where can they look you up? Where can they find you? So I have my book, When Abortion Was a Crime, which has been reissued in a second edition with a new update about the current situation and Dangerous Pregnancies, which is about German measles and rubella and the scientific discovery, what that meant in terms of disabilities and, and politics and the abortion movement. Professor Leslie Regan, thank you so much for joining me and lending me your expertise and knowledge on this really, really important subject. Thank you so much, Kate, for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening and thank you to Leslie for your work. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This was a tough one, so thanks for staying with us. And most of all, stay well and stay safe, everybody. Join me again betwixt the sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Where can you hear about the history of a lifetime? The Times has a new podcast about the lives that define the age we live in. Each week, through the Obits pages of The Times, we bring you the stories of scientists, politicians, pop stars, athletes, and many more. What they did in their lives, why they did it, and how they did it. Your history, available wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.